This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi there. This is Will Hopton from Washington, D.C., and you are listening to the greatest podcast, The Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and thank you to Will Hopton there from Washington, D.C. for our lovely intro and, Will, for your kind words about the tennis podcast. You say from Washington, D.C., but we detect a hint of a British accent there. I won't put Matt on the spot uh, and inquire about uh, your heritage, Will, but do get in touch and let us know if there is a hint of Britishness in that accent or whether we're just we're just seeing Britishness where there is none or hearing it rather. Uh, we're back. We're at the midway point of Indian Wells or sort of somewhere near the midway point of Indian Wells. These sort of 10, 11, 12 day, 1000 events. It's quite difficult to know what stage we're at. Obviously, we're at different stages of the men's tournament and the women's tournament because because tennis. Uh, but we're very pleased to be here all together, not in the same room, but by the beauty of uh, digital networking tools, uh, all here together to bring you our hot takes from the sort of midway point of Indian Wells. Hello, David. Hello. How are we all? We're all right, I think. Mm. Yeah, I- I'm all right. How are you, Matt? Fine, thank you. It feels like October, two years in a row, has been quite confusing as a tennis oh, yeah. fan, um, we had Roland Garros in, in these pretty much exact weeks last year, didn't we? Now it's now it's Indian Wells, where normally you associate that here with the weather getting better, the weather's getting worse. Uh, tournaments are such sort of pillars of where you are in the calendar. Um, so it is all a bit discombobulating, but I, I'm enjoying it nonetheless. Well, imagine how I feel, Matt. I've, I've had about 25 Indian Wells in my <laughs> life so far. And I mean, they've always been in March and the, the clocks have always been going the other way and now they're coming back in a few weeks time so it's very confusing for me um but i I agree with you i am enjoying it i mean just it reminds me how much i missed this tournament when it wasn't happening so yeah and i'm i'm very much enjoying some of the storylines that are attached to it after the u.s open that element of it is just interesting because normally you wouldn't have that would you you'd have it out coming after a an indoor season for a month in february with rotterdam and all those tournaments 
In a, in our uh, lovely uh, bit of software that we use to create agendas and generally make notes for this podcast, I opened the wrong page. Well, I opened I opened a page entitled Indian Wells Update Two, which I thought would be what this podcast is because we did last Monday, we did Thursday, which I considered update one, and I thought this would be Indian Wells update two. And uh, the headline in the agenda is Dark Day for Predictions. Quickly quickly Googles whether Hubert Hercatch is still in the tournament. As far as I'm aware, he is. Um, So not a dark day for my predictions. And then there's all uh, all sorts of updates in here that I just couldn't place where on earth this agenda would have been from. It was a good day for seeds and title contenders. Only Bencic lost. Big women's match of the day involved Serena. She had a three-set win over Buzanescu. Very confusingly, under men's, it says Sitsipas won in straight sets over Pedro Martinez. Now, isn't that actually what did happen in Indian Wells last night? <laughs> yes, it did. Uh, basically, yes, it's the like copy a and decoy, pasting. It's like a decoy agenda. I'm really enjoying This is the French Open, I believe. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't is know it, how that's it, happened. Is it there? Is it there to catch me out? It because for, for quite quite some time it did. We, we were just trying to sort of recreate the, the the schedule of podcasts, and and I forgot to delete all the contents of the various uh, things that we overwrote. Does that make sense? Was it a dark day for anybody else's predictions? Has it been? Has anybody yeah. else had dark days? Oh, yeah. Okay, that is timely for me because. Uh, Garbinia Muguruza is out. Oh, yeah. Off the back of her title last week, I predicted her foolishly to back it up. Yeah, I would never have done that. And she even. lost to Ayla Tomjanovic. In a great match. And even worse, actually, that really I actually looked at the draw, saw that match was happening, and still decided, no, Muguruza will be fine. You know, Tomjanovic, very capable, but she doesn't have many of those big wins. So big, big deal for her. But yeah, Muguruza... That inconsistency strikes mm. again in quite a consistent season, but yeah, and yet you still don't feel like she's reliable from a mm. from a predictions point of view, do you? And yet she ought to be, as you say. This has been probably her most consistent season on tour, if not the one with the biggest mm. biggest standout wins. David, who was your pick? Was Sitsa Pass? No, yes. Medvedev. Sitsa Pass. Yeah, Medvedev is obviously who I think will win the tournament, but right. the value of picking him is minuscule so right. I decided to just slightly roll the dice and go with Tsitsipas. I, I keep trying to work out the court conditions of this tournament and I, I settled on Tsitsipas and yet the more I hear from players talking about the conditions the less understanding I am of who it actually benefits this tournament I really don't get it thin air that the ball flies through heavy balls now rather than light as they use in the past and gritty tennis courts that make the ball check and fluff up the ball who on earth does that favor I really don't know and does it maybe change a bit in the day and in the night I um I saw some amusing quotes from Rublev saying that he found it impossible to hit a winner at night, and yet he still actually hit 30 winners in two sets. <laughs> well, look, I, I think the conditions are... Uh, and I I find it very hard to judge conditions on the telly. I very rarely s- say my opinion of conditions. I usually borrow other people's takes about how a court is playing. I think it is playing visibly extremely slowly and I 
think that is a big feature of this tournament. It's impacting a lot of results, a lot of score lines, a lot of sort of body language on the court. There's a lot of very frustrated players out there that have maybe played their last tournament at the US Open where it was a winner fest, wasn't it? And it felt like the court was going for you, going with you. And here it's like the court is is going against you. It's making you work so hard for for those wins. And Matt and I were talking about this yesterday. Matt and I went to see a, a an Arthur Ashe documentary at the London Film Festival last night. Um, we were talking about this and just general that generally the fact that a slow hard court is never a good thing. It's always better. Not that a slow court is never a good thing. Slow clay court is a is a really fun thing. That clay throws other things in the mix that make it interesting. A, a slow hard court is always worse than a faster hard court. And in particular, because it impacts the women more because they are less able to hit through the court. Just the sheer power def- deficit... Um, puts them at more of a disadvantage on that court and on that kind of court. So I'm slightly disappointed to see the conditions as slow as they are. But that is not to say that we haven't had some great matches. And one of them is fresh in all of our minds. And that was a three set win for 34 year old Andy Murray on his metal hip over 18 year old Carlos Alcaraz. And it was a vintage Andy Murray performance, scrappy as anything it was messy and all over the place I'm sure the stats were not particularly flattering you know it wasn't it wasn't a rash of winners it was so scrappy and so Andy Murray and he wore Carlos Alcaraz down physically 18 year old Carlos Alcaraz and that must have just felt like I don't know something good in his veins um, it was it was a really uplifting sight to behold that match. Yeah, there's been so many times, even when Murray's been losing to people like Hubert Hercatch and Casper Ruud recently, where I've still ended up thinking, well, I still didn't really expect him to be able to do this kind of thing. So personally, I take heart from it, whilst he seemed to be just miffed about everything because he expects more of himself. I think this is what he expected of himself when he started this comeback. And I just didn't see this being realistic. I didn't think about that hip or him being 34 or him having gone through such crises over the last four years and being unable to be a proper tennis player. I didn't think about any of that during this match. At no point did I think his body was going to fail him because there was not a flicker of it. It was just about tennis and bloody-mindedness, and let's go and have it out right now. And I mean, even in his interview on court afterwards, he said, I went onto the court trying to match his energy. I wanted to mirror him, which I loved that idea, and that's exactly how it came across when I turned on at three love to Murray in the first set. And from what, what the commentators were saying, that Alcaraz was just all over the place. First match he'd played since the US Open. He's been injured in the meantime. He was he was really erratic, and he wasn't his game wasn't there at all. And Murray had points to go four love up, and yet Alcaraz still won that set in over an hour, seven five. And from there, I decided to switch off the the iPad and go to sleep and pick it up again in the morning. And I fully expected the second set to be six two to Alcaraz, and Murray turned it around and won that match in three sets and 
And at the start of that, I can't remember, I think it was the start of the second set, he had several games that were going 11 minutes long on his own serve. He was hanging on, playing well, but hanging on. And for him to wrestle control from Alcaraz, this 18-year-old who is like a right-handed Nadal in the way that he goes about his business. He may not be as good, I don't know. Time will tell with all that. But in terms of his energy and his attitude and the violence with which he's going after his shots, Murray was having to throw the lot in order to turn it around. And and he did match his energy, and he he was ridiculously pumped up. It was so much fun to watch. Um, And I loved absolutely every minute of it minutes of it including the first underarm serve of his entire career that he hit uh, i think at one An two ace. down and he and he and he just sort of yeah he dropped he just he didn't even put any spin on it it was just a little pat over the definitely net wasn't the first he's he's hit ever that like he's definitely been practicing that i thought it was really it, it was it was well rehearsed it was one of the best underarm serves i've seen both in terms of the execution and the timing of it and, and trust Murray to really use it properly and tactically in that way. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed this match immensely. I, I had a very similar feeling to what I got at the US Open, watching him play Sitsipas for the first time. It's nice to see Murray playing new people and you know players who've emerged in these last few years where Murray hasn't been able to play regularly on the tour it's just nice to watch him go up against them because he's got such an interesting game Murray that he can often exploit their weaknesses or sort of force them to raise their level as well and yeah just from that point of view I found it interesting and and the start as you said was interesting Murray was actually in quite unfamiliar territory because he was actually the more match sharp player to begin with which is something he's not really had for a while as you said Alcaraz hadn't played since the US Open with his own injury and it was a horrible start from Alcaraz and Murray did take advantage of it but for Alcaraz to work himself into it I think he showed a lot in that match even though he lost I think he really displayed most of his qualities uh, Murray was full of praise for him at the end he's got well we know them he's got such a nice blend of weapons to hurt opponents and a, an instinct of knowing how to use them a really good attitude we saw all of that from Alcaraz but from Murray's perspective, I think I think Darren Cahill tweeted that he thought it was Murray's best win since the surgery. And, you know, I don't know. Murray's had some good wins. You know, I think back to the US Open last year against Nishioka, that five-set win. I think back to him winning Antwerp. But I think it's what you said. It was sort of classic Andy Murray. It was scrappy and vintage and he had to be physically stronger and he had to be mentally stronger. And I think he'll get such a such a buzz out of managing to do that against someone like Alcaraz. And just like you, when he lost that first set, my heart sort of sank for him because I felt like I've seen that set so many times this year. And I went back to have a quick look at his record this season. Going back all the way to Lyon, he lost 7-6 and then 6-1 to Igor Gerasimov. Rotterdam, 7-5, then 6-2 to Rublev. Cincinnati, 7-6, 6-3 to Hercatch. Winston-Salem, 7-6, 6-3 to Tiafo. Mets, 7-6, 6-3 to Hercatch again. And then last week in San Diego, 7-5, 6-4 to Rude. It's been a real pattern this season. Murray's played well in first sets, not been able to win them, and then just faded a little bit in the second set. So... 
for him to turn that around and do what he did in those second and third sets, I thought was really uplifting, actually, to watch that from Murray. And it's a real vindication of what he's been telling us for a while, which is I just need my body to give me a chance mm. to to get on a roll and see where that roll takes me. Because it's, you know, every time it seemed like he might be at the start of that roll, he's had a niggle. Mm. And look, I, I don't know what the ceiling is, but this feels like the first time that he might be able to find out that his body might allow him to find out what that ceiling is because he is improving it's amazing to think of him as a 34 year old tennis player that's achieved what he has to be improving I'm not saying improving on his on his absolute peak improving on whatever his new baseline is he is getting better all the time Um, and I, I don't know what the limit to that is he doesn't know what the limit to that is but finally it feels like he might be able to find out and that's that's a treat. You know, this is already the first time since Cincinnati last year that he's won back-to-back matches at a Masters. And incidentally, one of his victims at Cincinnati last year, which of course wasn't played in Cincinnati, was Alexander Zverev. And that'll be his next opponent. Now, they're both playing better tennis than they were at the Western and Southern Open last year. And Zverev, of course, is is the heavy favourite going into that. But he does get a day off in between, which is crucial, I think, because that was a a match beyond three hours, Murray's win over Alcaraz. Um, incidentally, he's he's found his shoes and his wedding ring. That very much feels like yesterday's news. But for anybody that's been hanging on that update, um, yeah, he's, as in, in his own words, he's back in the good books. Did, did you hear what he said on Match Point, just ahead of Match Point in this match today? He He goes up to the line... And he looks up, I think, in the direction. We can't see who he's looking at because he's looking sort of at the camera. But I think it's coming from direction uh, Jamie Delgado and Shane and the, the, the coach and the, and the fitness physio. And he just he said to himself, come on, let's go. Ruthless! Come on! <laughs> like this. Oh, that's and what then... I'm going sh- <laughs> to just shout. <laughs> just shout at various points throughout the day, I think. And then he, th- he threw the ball up. Just walking around he- Tesco. It was, an aborted, it, was, <laughs> it was an aborted service toss. So he throws it over, he catches it. And he goes, sorry, mate, sorry. <laughs> like this. And then he throws in a second serve, serve and volley, mm. which was just, um, what, a, what a tactical stroke that was. Because it, he ended up with a put away, very simple forehand volley. And the whole match was tactical. The way he found a way to get the ball onto the Alcaraz backhand because that was obviously the tactic from the start, you know, avoid avoid the forehand. You, you would against Alcaraz, but he wasn't able to do that in, in, well, the latter stages of the opening set anyway, once Alcaraz found his feet. But sort of second and third sets, it was just, you could see him trying to figure it out, figure out how to keep this ball on the Alcaraz backhand. And he did, did by the end. I think the stats very much, very much bore that out. I mean, it was... It was so vintage Murray in every way, and I, I, I loved watching it. And I thought he was really patient with himself and understanding with himself. He wasn't getting that frustrated. He was quite accepting of errors that he was making. And, and sometimes that's been an amazing quality of Andy Murray's to get upset with his errors. But I think this particular moment of his career, I'm not sure it necessarily helps him so much. I think... 
getting that balance between expectation and reality of what he's capable of has been a really hard thing for him over these last few months. But it seems like he's he's in he's in a better place with that now. And I thought last night, yeah, he he didn't always play his best tennis, but he did at times, and he's he moved really well, and and he just he just accepted what he had and used what he had, and it was enough to get the win. Incidentally, on that really slow start from from Carlos Alcaraz in the match, I I found there to be great similarities in that in the early stages of his performance to what we saw from Emma Raducanu uh, a few nights or a couple of nights previously in her uh, opening match against Alexandra Sasnovich, the Belarusian that she lost. Raducanu six two six four. It looked like somebody. Like Raducanu, um, that it, her, their last professional matches had been at the U.S. Open in incredibly difficult conditions. It looked like there was this realization of, "Whoa, hang on a second, these shots were winners three weeks ago, <laughs> and now now they're coming back, and I'm on the back foot." And okay, I know they've had a long time in practice, but we all know it's not the same in practice as is on a match court factoring in all the stress and the crowds and, you know, condition changes, all of that. Um, it was a real sort of rocking on the heels adjustment process. And Alcaraz, you know, found his way back into it. You could argue that Murray let him off let him off the hook a little bit midway through that opening set and allowed him to get back into it in a way that, you know, Raducanu was, was never able to, to find her feet. There's perhaps touch of immaturity from Raducanu in, or, or perhaps naivety would be a be- better word in that you know she got very frustrated with that situation that inability to hit hit winners um she she didn't deal with that all that well you could say I find that extremely understandable but she looked f- f- I watched this match despite it being on at 2 a.m UK time um, I went to a wedding on Friday night and got in at the perfect time to oh, well. sit down, <laughs> sit down and in a mostly sober state, watch Emma Raducanu. Um, and yeah, she, she looked, it was when I was most hit by the conditions and how slow they were. She looked early on every shot. She looked like, you know, I'm going to go out there and play like I did in New York. Why wouldn't you have that? have that approach and it just didn't didn't work for her at all in the same way and yes she did get very frustrated with that and her body language wasn't like it was in New York she did look flat and frustrated but she's so inexperienced I think that is entirely understandable and Alexander Sasnovich by the way was really good and she I got the impression that when she saw the draw come out and she saw that she was playing the US Open champion she thought yes please this is an opportunity for me. She was really pumped and up for it. She wanted to be the disruptor that, that you know, upset the apple cart and, you know, made herself the bad guy a little bit because Raducanu had massive crowd crowd support um, for that match. So uh, Sasnovich was great. Raducanu wasn't great, but I don't, I don't read too much into that personally. I don't really read anything into it. Um, Sasnovich had played tournaments in Luxembourg and Chicago, playing singles and doubles since that US Open. Now, she's 100 in the world, but she's been 30 in the world. She's a really good player, really compact player as well. And it seems to me that to be successful on these courts, 
you need to have something that is repeatable, a very repeatable game. And hers is is able to do that. And she showed that backing it up by beating Simona Halep last night. You know, this was not just a one-off. This isn't the only win of this type she's had now or in the past. And I, I agree with you in terms of, I mean, Andy Murray described the conditions as painfully slow. And there were shots that Raducanu hit where she decided to come into the net because she's quite quite decent actually when she does that we saw that at the US Open and the ball would just check on this surface and wait for Sasnovich to run over to it to hit a passing shot um it's it's very difficult to to get used to that when you've just never done it before Raducanu's never been to Indian Wells before in her whole life let alone played the conditions and I've used the word novice in the past that's exactly what she is she's a, a prodigious kind of generational talent i think as she showed by doing something nobody's ever won done by winning the u.s open but she doesn't know anything about this stuff yet so she's coming out a go she's lost the match who cares on we go yeah i think with radicano the thing is you can't have it both ways you can't say that her u.s open run was incredible and astonishing and then say it's a sort of tragedy that she's lost her first match in Indian Wells because the fact she has no tour experience is what makes the US Open incredible and astonishing and all of those things. And it's what makes it very understandable that she's lost here in Indian Wells. I think, you know, a US Open win can do so much for you. It can make you skip so many rungs of the ladder that you have to climb in professional tennis in terms of ranking points and prize money and recognition and all of that. But it doesn't magically get you used to competing on the tour. It doesn't magically get you used to playing in new conditions for the first time against some of the best players in the world. So With a, with a bye. Yeah, it, absolutely. She had no sort of easy way in into this motion, tournament at all motion to eradicate buys from tennis yes please i mean she, she had three four matches at the u.s open before she reached round two of the u.s open so she's got herself into it here she's playing an opponent who's had a match before mm. facing her on that surface i mean it's just so different and it could just be that these conditions will never suit emma raducanu there are loads of Great players. I mean, Andy Murray is one. He's never mm. really had good results in Indian Wells. One final and then a load of losses that you wouldn't expect. And I heard Andy Roddick, I think, on on Tennis Channel saying, this is so different to both Wimbledon and the US Open, where the ball was low and it was skidding. And here it's high bouncing and it's slow. And we've seen that with loads of experienced players in the past. Mm. Yeah, and and of course, look, the loss has got a lot of attention because everything Amarada Khani does gets a lot of attention and that will be the case for, for a long time, probably for the rest of her life. Um, it's amplified by the fact that a lot of British media have gone out to Indian Wells to cover Amarada Khani. Before Raducanu did what she did in New York, they wouldn't have been planning to travel to Indian Wells. But as it is, there is, there is a cohort of them out there. One of those is Simon Briggs. Uh, they are living, four of them, in uh, a sort of middle-aged tennis correspondent's frat house. <laughs> <laughs> and lucky, lucky David has had the opportunity to chat to Simon Briggs in that frat house. 
let's hear uh, from Simon Briggs uh, speaking to David about how he's getting on on his first ever visit to Indian Wells. Yeah, I think I'm the only one of us in this house because I'm stay- staying with um, a man from the Times, a man from the Mail and uh, Russell from the BBC. I think the only one who hasn't been here before after uh, it's uh, 10 years I've been doing this job now, so it's quite bizarre. But then because March is right in the middle of the Cheltenham Festival, also the end of the Six Nations, it's always been like the worst week of the year to get anything in the paper. So um, <laughs> I guess with the Emma Raducanu factor, that wouldn't have been a problem this year, even if we were up against such uh, major events since she's almost taken over the uh, the leading role as the Telegraph's most read about citizen in the last couple of weeks. Wow. Uh, well, let's start right there. I mean, that that's extraordinary, really, isn't it? If we if we were to go back three months ago, I know she was obviously a a pretty big deal after Wimbledon, but but could you possibly have conceived that that would ever happen in your job to have a player like that? No, it's been uh, it's been crazy. But then what she did at the U.S. Open was um, technically impossible. You can't you can't win a slam as a qualifier as a qualifier. So. Uh, Every, every logic has been thrown out the window and the um, public interest has been extraordinary. And I guess one of the weirdest things is hearing your kids ask you about um, your day job and, your, and the first person you're reporting on having, you know, been through a decade of total indifference. But uh, that's, that's the difference that she's making, isn't it? To uh, reach out to younger people, to men, to women, to all generations. And it's um, just extraordinary magnetism that she has. What what does that I mean? We'll, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about her experience in Indian Wells in a minute. But what does that mean for you in the in the job in terms of reporting on her? Because that public interest seems to translate into a requirement for you to be writing about her all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And the other people are definitely being um, not given the airtime that they would deserve. But I don't think it'll go on forever. Um, I just think it's. You know, the, we're, we're a news organisation and, and we have to react to demand and um, and there is an element of, of it being excessive. Uh, that, that is, you know, a, a fair view. But at the same time, if people want to read about her, then um, it's my job to try and tell them things. And uh, I haven't quite got to the point where I've felt like I've got nothing left. I have just broadened out the number of people that I've spoken to looking for, you know, more witnesses, more experts. And I think we have almost reached the stage now where everybody who ever, you know, uh, gave her a, a tennis racket or um, put up a net for her or, or uh, you know, gave her a PE lesson has had their say. And uh, possibly the well is now dry, but because I guess, you know, she has played a match now and maybe she'll play more tournaments, then the narrative will have a, a new engine in terms of, of, of um, what's happening on the court. Mm. There, there was a, a really good read that you put together and we, we talked about it a, a, a while ago when you were preparing for it. The, uh, the one that was headlined, her six steps to world domination, yeah. which I thought when I read it, it doesn't sound quite what you wrote. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, what, what was your thinking when putting that together? Well, I mean, the headlines on, on several occasions haven't really reflected the things I've been writing, but, um, it was just to try and uh, put uh, the future to the next stage into context. Um, you know, I think Naomi Brody came through for me as an absolutely wonderful source about that experience of going out on the tour. Um, and actually what Naomi said 
was incredibly relevant to this week in Indian Wells because she talked about that social anxiety of going into the um, locker room, of going into the player restaurant. And one sort of thing that we both maybe got wrong was that Naomi said to me, well, she'll be okay because she's going to have a team. And I, I said, yes, absolutely. I agree with you. And I put that in. And actually, uh, there wasn't the team that we expected because we thought that there'd be more people here that she knew. And it ended up the only person here that she really knew properly uh, from having worked with them at the US Open was her agent or her co-agent, Chris Helliar. And that was a factor. Um, and you know, I heard that she had been in that situation, the name we described so well, which was being on her own in the player restaurant and looking a bit like a girl who has transferred schools. And that is something which um, it, you don't think about, you know, that's something that, that people like me need to explain to readers. And, and indeed, Naomi needs to explain to me. I, you know, I haven't been on the tour. Um, somebody like Andreescu, you know, when she had her 2019 season, she knew all these girls in juniors and suddenly she didn't know anybody in, in the locker room and you have to remake your life. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the backdrop that, that uh, a sudden in, in, intense rise and uh, an explosion of fame. Um, it's a situation that, that it leaves you in, 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 in the kind of basic day-to-day environment of touring life. It's very, very challenging and it has been challenging, I think, this week for, for Emma. And... At the same time, I mean, you, you you writing about somebody who is that new to it. Do you do you feel a sort of a sense of responsibility to to get the tone right? Because I, I think that that seems quite challenging to me because she's so big, so suddenly, and so much interest is in her uh, upon her, and yet, and she had one match, one loss, and I mean, I certainly ran into people who reacted in a way that I was thinking, well, it's a, it's one match. You know, what? why why are you getting so upset about it? People are, that I would talk to just who didn't normally care about tennis. Um, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I did the match report and, you know, I, I stressed that, uh, you know, I felt that it had been very difficult um, to go back out there after everything that she'd achieved in New York. That was always going to be the case. You know, you look back at the people who have won events immediately after their first slam and it, it has happened i think i worked out that azarenka and barty had done it but you know the vast majority have a period of adjustment and in emma's case it'll be all the more extreme because she hasn't won a match on the women's tour yet on the wta tour so um that was always going to be a big factor and uh in fact you know andy murray said when we spoke to him about it he said it probably wasn't unexpected um it's just the way it is um and I also talked about the the extraordinary maturity that she showed in the uh, post match interview, which was really reassuring. Just the way that she emphasised that she has to get these experiences under her belt and um, and, and grow from them. Uh, you know, there was no sense that she was kind of feeling uh, sort of panicky about the fact that she hadn't been able to play her best. She just put it down to her experience and moved on, and that was pretty encouraging to hear. Just the way that she dealt with it was the the, the best part of the of the week, I think. Um, and then, you know, there was the issue, I think, about the, the backroom team, which I think that, you know, people around her haven't got right. And we felt that. But then she said that really, didn't she? Because she said to us, um, you know, if there are any experienced coaches out there, then, you know, they, then they know where to find me. And I'm not joking. You know, I'd like to hear from them. Um, and, it, and it did bring home the fact that she has been a little bit um, left uh, out here with without perhaps the support she could have been. And... 
if she had won that match, she'd have gone into the se- third round, sorry, um, against Simona Halep without a coach present because Jeremy Bates, who was being a locum coach, was actually going off to work on his prior engagements, you know, with Katie Bolter and the Lawn Tennis Association and wouldn't have been here uh, beyond the weekend anyway. So it does underline the fact that, you know, that, that they, the people around her need to maybe um, just get something sorted. Uh, that's that's the point she made too, and and it was it was the the theme of the week. These were the themes of the week. That, that there were probably threefold. You know, the social challenge of coming back, the um, the pressure that, that that you're going to experience at some point as a new champion, and the fact that the support the, the support team hasn't been perhaps ideally constituted around her at this stage. Mm. You alluded in one of your pieces to a development in that area, or at least a, a coach of significance that you think may be lined up. Well, I mean, I heard that um, some people had heard that there was a deal on the way as long ago as August, but, you know, um, the, the word was that it was a Spanish coach was perhaps in the frame, um, or maybe Spanish speaking, because the person that uh, seemed to be at the front of everyone's list was Carlos Rodriguez, who is Argentine, who worked with Henan and Linar. I've got to say that um, you know that, that deal, if it happens, is clearly not as close as it might be, it, judging by the comments that Emma made after the match. Because if it, if it was at the point of being rubber stamped, I don't think she necessarily would have said that. Um, I still think he's a front runner, um, and and there's a couple of other people. Sven Grenneveld, if um, you know, if he, if he wasn't necessarily um, bonding with Bianca Andreescu in the way that he might, if he could be, um, he could be a, a potential alternative. Um, and I suppose Esteban Carroll, another Spanish coach. They, these people are also high up the list. But um, obviously, the, the the narrative of the whole Radicanu development has been that um, her father has believed in bringing coaches in for relatively short stints. But there comes a point where if you want to get the, the real top operators, they, they're not going to want to work for, for a couple of months. They're going to want to do a proper period with the top young player. And so they need to find some sort of stability and show that they move maybe from phase one of development. And obviously no one can argue that they did a bang up job <laughs> in getting her ready. Um, but this is maybe phase two now. It, yeah, she's ranked in the top 25 and she's on the tour. So um, there needs to be a, a, a new model because, as, as Lindsay Davenport said on commentary as well, it, it, you have to have some sort of stability around around you and people that you can depend on. Um, mm. So whether she'll play again this year, whether she'll go to um, Moscow, uh, Romania, and Linz that she's entered, I don't know. But um, there obviously needs to be some brainstorming and and some pressing forward on those uh, contractual issues not this i mean do you feel though is there a feeling amongst you as as the media that cover her that 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 needs to be sorted for those events if she were to play them or in time for the new year i mean it's hard to say the uh, situations um for the tournament that's coming up but um you think that it's a bit rough sending her out without um a kind of locum coach who's going to be there for the whole tournament when there's so much attention on her. <laughs> attention which people like me obviously are um, the uh, the instrument of. But, uh, of course, 
that is coming from a, a worldwide level of interest and she has definitely expanded beyond British horizons and you could see that the uh, the fans here were desperately trying to urge her on during her match um, so yeah I just think it it's a little tough on her if she doesn't have somebody who's going to be there the whole whole week uh, depending on how far she goes because that was that was the situation here hmm. um what does this mean for you now going forward? I mean, do you, do you feel, are you there just to cover Radicano or will you stay on for the rest of, of Indian Wells? Well, I think we'll stay here um, while the Brits are, are in position. Um, obviously, three men uh, from Britain, three wins in the in their opening matches. Um, so that was a pretty decent showing. And, uh, you know, Andy Murray will... I guess take the spotlight next. Um, he still uh, has a far higher profile than uh, Cam Norrie and Dan Evans. Uh, and you know, the, if you're writing for a general paper like the Telegraph, you your your agenda is partly defined by that that um, that, that level of, of fame, as well as the results that people are producing on the court. Obviously, Andy, not winning as many matches at the moment as Dan or Cam. Um, but, but his story remains the most um, gripping for the general reader. So he'll kind of move into the, the pole position, I suppose, for my, um, my, my reports in the next couple of days. And then we'll see who goes deepest. And there uh, must be a mm. decent chance that one of these guys is going to be here late into this coming week. Just to give uh, listeners an idea, I, I read something put out by the British Tennis Journalists Association, which is formerly the Lawn Tennis Writers Association, which makes it clear that, that you're, you're over there, you've gone to Indian Wells, but you're still not actually allowed to share any common space with these players and talk to them directly. You're still on a Zoom call like we are right now. Is that right? Yes, although, I mean, funnily enough, you, you can sort of bump into them wandering around the place in the open air and there's no um, necessary demand that people are going to wear masks at this event. So um, it's, it's a little strange. I think the, the tours are, are being a little overcautious. That was what the letter was, was about because I was at the Ryder Cup 10 days ago and they had the players in an open air tent, the reporters with microphones. It was very safe. It was very satisfactory from our point of view as, as media. Um, and I think the tennis needs to be a bit more brave because it's being left behind by other sports, which are now moving back to a more face-to-face model. Having said that, we do get a little bit of extra time with um, players um, having come out here. So there, there, there is a benefit to it. And uh, so far, it's been a, a worthwhile trip. It's just a question of um, moving back towards more human interaction. And even Naomi Ozaka, who's um, obviously spoken so much this year about her issues with some media interactions uh, went on record at the US Open to say that she finds it much easier when she can see people in person rather than looking at a screen. So um, I think the general level of kind of coverage would improve if we could maybe kickstart that. I suspect that the tours will, will maybe not react until the end of the year, but I don't see why there's any reason why they couldn't uh, put something in place in, in the coming weeks um, because I think you can do it safely now. And obviously, tournaments are moving back towards full full crowds, and um, and everything is is opening up a little bit. Mm. And where, where is everybody in that big stadium? Because 
the crowds have been really small in the main stadium is that is that heat of the year is that is that what what do you feel that's down to well i think people are just a little bit out of sync in terms of the dates um there's still there still there still are people who are concerned about being in crowds because there's still obviously plenty of cases of covid going around um it's just uh i haven't been here in spring so i i haven't seen it in its sort of full glory but um people come down uh, from Canada, don't they? This, that was my taxi driver yesterday was telling me that, that, that they they call the Coca-Cola Valley Little Canada because there are so many people who come for the winter. They have houses here and they often come in as well in March for the tennis. Um, so there's a kind of migration of fans. Um, it's a little bit like I was at the Ryder Cup last week and uh, some of the guys went to see the Green Bay Packers who have a stadium of like, I don't know, 90,000 in a town of 75,000. Um, and so people are coming all over and they're, they're filling it. So th- that crowd is drawn from all over the States. And I think Indian Wells, as I understand it, is quite like that. There's not that many people in this area by the standards of the event, but it draws migrants in to watch it. But because of the dates, I think everyone's out of sync. So yeah, for the, for the Emma match on the first night, it was, um, not the first night, but the first night I was covering it. Um, it was a third full probably in the stadium. Um, it was still a fair few number of people, but obviously it's a big, big old bowl, isn't it? Um, and and the early games were certainly played out in, uh, in in relatively quiet atmosphere, which I'm not sure necessarily helped us. You might have maybe found a bit of um, extra energy if there had been a bit bigger, bit bigger and louder crowd. Mm. And just finally, I mean, tennis generally for you to cover, it's it seems to have had. I think for all of us in the industry, certainly in Britain, and it's been given a new lease of life really by this Radicanu story. But it's it's a while since you took a trip quite like like this one, and suddenly you're not surrounded by the the normal faces of the sport. But but how, how does it feel to cover it at the moment? The men and the women divide and and so forth. Well, yeah, I haven't been on a, a plane to cover a tennis event for twenty months, so. Uh... It's been quite fun to get back. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I might not have been out here had it not been for Emma making it such a, a kind of a high-attention event in the UK. Um, but uh, I'm really looking forward to the rest of it and um, uh, I'm, I'm watching, you know, the British guys in particular and seeing how far they can go. So, um, I don't know, it doesn't... Now, now, that, now that that kind of spike of, of interest is has finished and, and maybe with any luck there might be a, a tiny a tiny bursting of the kind of attention bubble around them which because it has been excessive um then perhaps we can get back to a little bit more of the sort of the normal um way of doing things um but yeah it's, it's just great to be back on the road after such a long time if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. And real tennis correspondence of the Coachella Valley is a reality TV show coming to a screen near you soon or... At least it should be. <laughs> yeah. Why has nobody packed that little GoPro? Absolutely. Camera? How many? What? What are the sleeping arrangements? How many bathrooms have they got? Who's doing the cooking? You didn't ask any of the questions <laughs> that I would have asked, David. <laughs> uh, and yet it was still a very informative and entertaining interview. Well done. Uh, it was interesting, wasn't it? Very interesting to to. Well, I mean, it's always interesting to speak to Simon, isn't it? But to get those perspectives on, on a lot of things, in particular, Emre Adekanu's coaching, coaching situation, because there has been a lot of almost backlash, really, about that decision to to not continue working with Andrew Richardson after the US Open and to to not get someone permanently in place for her return to the tour. Um, personally, I think those two things are slightly different things. Um, the decision not to continue working with Andrew Richardson, personally, as as much as he deserves a lot of credit, I absolutely see the logic of wanting someone that's that's been there and done it on the tour. Um, I absolutely see that. But then I also, you know, when 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 Simon was describing that whole, you know, being in the being in the uh, players' dining, sitting on your own, not knowing anybody, and not having any allies there, right? That that really got me, you know. And and she needs an ally as much as she needs, you know, a a coach with great tactical and te- technical now. So I'm sure I'm sure she would like that as well. But um, 
yeah that that was that was quite a powerful image actually and it ma- it made me think and this is a, an entirely separate and whole massive discussion area that we don't have time for today but god i wish there were more female coaches i wish that one of the i wish that one or more of the the people that we were all running through in our in our minds as potential coaches for Amirati Khanu with the necessary experience and clout i wish that there were women on that list and there should be somebody that can that can help her not only with transitioning into being a tennis player but god this is going to sound awful and corny but into being a woman you know someone that knows what it's like to be an 18 year old girl and maybe doesn't know about all the experiences she's having because I'm not sure anybody does she's having you know she's going through something entirely unique but somebody that can be an ally as a as a female and as as well as a, a tennis coach i I wish that option were available to her. I'm not saying there aren't there aren't people that could do that for her. I'm saying the names that spring to mind, the various names that we've discussed, none of them are female. And mm. goodness me, that needs to change. Women need to have the option to be coached by by women. That needs to be just a natural, obvious, easy thing. Mm. And actually uh, made me think while you were saying that how male the environment of tennis is apart from the players generally i i mean yes if you if you look behind the scenes there are female uh, supervisors and physios but there's nowhere near as many as there are males and as well as the coaching fraternity i think the the media on-site fraternity obviously the vast majority of the media are male uh, broadcasters those that are on site it's it's not that Physios, easy. Physios, fitness trainers, you know, it's not just the coaches. The, the whole team, agents, you know, all all of the, the people in her box at the US Open were male, weren't they? And I'm sure I'm sure they were absolutely great, but none of them have been an 18-year-old girl. Mm. On, on the subject of, of Andrew Richardson, I, I said it the other week that, that I, my initial reaction was, blimey, that's, that seems a bit harsh from his perspective. And I think that some of the... The, the the backlash comes from the fact that this is so unusual to to have success and just immediately dispense working with a coach uh, that I think people have found that difficult to, to stomach for, certainly for, within the coaching environments the coaching fraternity that the the but you know look the same happened after Wimbledon with Nigel Sears. I said at the time, that's I'm a bit surprised by that. She went and won the US Open. She's going to go and do what she likes, right? Um, but also, just generally, I think the idea of a long-term experienced coach is a sensible one. For this period specifically, I think probably would have been better maybe to to have Andrew Richardson with her for the rest of this year just to sort of carry on and whatever. But it's easy, easy to say that, isn't it? And does it... Did, would that meant she won that match the other day? I doubt it. I, I don't think she was going to lose that match. And I really just don't think it matters too much about her results the rest of this year whatsoever. All that matters is that she can kind of hopefully enjoy the rest of it and the, the afterglow of winning the US Open and then start to build the foundations of the rest of her life and career. That's all that matters as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah, well said. Um, incidentally, 
speaking very tangentially about Emirati Khani, currently on my screen is a replay of Leila Fernandez against Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, which was the second night session match last night. And uh, I chose this one to, to pop on as the, the background for re- recording because it was flagged up to me by by Pam Shriver on on Twitter as, as just an absolute thriller and uh, obviously I've been giving you two my full attention but the glimpses that I've caught <laughs> have have made it look absolutely thrilling and Pam I think said you know Leila Fernandez is the most sort of guaranteed she's best show in tennis best show in tennis there we go why did I try and put it differently to how Pam Shriver put it I don't know I'll never do that again and, and I think you know so much of the story of Indian Wells so far that that we've spoken about has been how hard it is to pick up where you left off in New York. You know, we've seen Alcaraz lose, Raducanu, Orger Aliasim is also out after his great run in, in New York. Um, and, and it's sort of made all the weirder by the fact that all the kits are pretty much exactly the same. They're all certainly wearing the same line of mm. kit. It does feel like they should just be carrying on. But of course, that's not the reality. But Leila Fernandez so far has been... Um, She's won two matches, the second of those against Anastasia Pavlochenkova in her classic US Open style, lost the first set, displayed that grit and determination, which was such an incredible trademark of hers during that US Open run. And, you know, I'm really impressed with that. There was something magical about Fernandez at the US Open and the connection she had with that crowd I did wonder whether it would be difficult to replicate but she seems to have a connection with this crowd as well she really got them going last night and I think people just respond to her story to her tennis and this was her fifth straight win against the top 20 player you know it was a match between two runners up in in the majors this year for that to be happening so so early in the tournament you know just just the signal of the strength of this field and yeah she's She's got this grit about her. She's a very different tennis player to Andrescu, but there are some similarities, you know, in terms of when they're in a fight, they seem to be at their best and they both become the protagonist of the match and take up a lot of the energy of a match. Um, she played a shot at one point to break serve in the first set, which was a, a, a backhand pass over her shoulder. She was running the wrong way and hit a winner and the crowd loved it. And yeah, I agree with Pam Shriver, really. That's... That's the best ticket in tennis at the moment. Alayla Fernandez night session match. It, it doesn't get much better. Can, can I also just say as well? I think she's really good in the interview room, which I didn't. I didn't know. I don't think I've ever interviewed her or been in one of her press conferences personally. But I, I played back the one she did last night after that match, and just a couple of answers. I mean, I gave a couple the other day that she just really opens up and gives you some insight into what she's like and what her interests are. And she said at one point, I'm an introvert. I like puzzles and Sudoku. Um, And actually, I like my box, my support team to get really into it. You know, you remember her fitness coach at uh, at the US Open, how animated he was. He's back. Yeah, she said, I really like that because it helps me to stay positive. And uh, and I just think these are really interesting insights into her. And she said, actually, um, she says one of the things that she has learned in her own mind to kind of use is when she's struggling, she thinks back to a period where she was struggling with her serve at the start of the year. And she went off to 
practice a serve and her dad had said to her instead we're just going to go and play soccer we're not going to play any tennis at all and for three days they just played various different games and had fun and she says now when I'm under pressure and I'm feeling a bit stressed out there I just try to take my mind back to that moment with my dad playing soccer and having fun without consequences and it just brings a smile back to my face and I just end up playing better which I, I think is a great little trick of the mind and that's what every player needs to have an ability to do don't they find a way to to get to a place where they feel good mm. yeah and, and and speaking of uh, players winning over a, a press conference room Iga Sviantek yesterday after her win over Veronica Kudamatova for the loss of just the one game. She's she's doing that thing again, Sviantek. <laughs> it's this point in the calendar. It's the first two <laughs> weeks of October where yes. she just crushes everyone. Yeah, she's decided not to lose games anymore. Um and she she came into her into her press conference and announced uh, that the moderator said Iga has has something she'd like to say. Um and she announced that she's going to be donating her third round prize money which is um, just close to $52,000 to a non-profit mental health organisation, uh, she said. So basically, I have an announcement. I decided that because today is World Mental Health Day, I'm going to honour it a little bit and donate my prize money from third round to some non-profit organisation. Sorry, I'm, I'm stressed a little bit, probably because I've never done that before. Basically, mental health support, it's always been a close topic for me. So I want to, for the first time, do something in that direction to help someone some people. We haven't chosen the exact non-profit right now because basically I came up with the idea during my match, which is not really professional. She said that smiling. Uh, But stay tuned to my social media. That's the message for the fans because I'm going to be talking with you probably in the comments of my post post about choosing the right organisations or foundations. So if you want to have a say in uh, where Riga Shvontek's prize money goes, then head to the comments in her social media section. I like that sort of democratic, charitable work. Um, But yeah, that's just, that's just brilliant, isn't it? Very well done, Iga, Iga Svantec. Matt, we were, we were going to wax lyrical about our night out on the town at the London Film Festival watching Citizen Ash. Um, But we've run out of time. So I'm going to use it as a, as a lure to get people to listen to Thursday's show. Not only will you get nice. tennis chat, you'll get Matt and I giving a film review, which is helpful because I don't, I haven't, you haven't told me about it yet. So I'm just going to wait with the listeners for Thursday. We were saving it for today, but we'll be saving it for Thursday now, and um, it's worth waiting for, folks. It was a cracker. There you go. Little preview there. We've we've plenty more to say. Don't worry. Uh, and there'll be plenty more to say about Indian Wells on Thursday as well, because there's a whole lot more tennis still to be played. We'll be back then. Um, we're going to give a shout out to our lovely mascot from last week. Once again, this Monday, Luna, because we just just kind of love Luna. And uh, I've seen a whole new raft of photos of Luna this morning and I enjoyed them very much indeed. So hello, Luna. And hello, lovely Richard, who is the owner of Luna. Uh, we have our mascots, Rogue Zeus, Scousel, Mousel. Uh, Billy Jean has Billy Jean King. Billy Jean is not here at the moment. She's been with my brother for the weekend. He informs me that she now dines on a diet of exclusively pork belly. <laughs> 
Um, so not at all spoiled. Uh, Chris Albert Lee is our executive producer. Hello, Chris Albert Lee. You're a top bloke. You'll be a top bloke once again on Thursday when we will be back with our next tennis podcast. David, Matt, thanks for your company. Thank you to Simon Briggs. Uh, hopefully we'll also bring you more news of the uh, the British tennis correspondent Frat House. TBC, we'll speak to you Thursday. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 